Well, good morning. Would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we have these moments that are set aside for us as a family to set our gaze on you, to open our ears and our hearts towards you. And so I'm asking that in power you would meet with us. Reveal yourself to us. And maybe, just maybe this morning, peel back the veil a little bit that we would, we would understand in fresh ways the depths of your glory. That we would understand that there's more to be seen, more to be experienced, that we would not be a people of paltry affections, but that we would be opened into wide open space to know you and see you and chase after you. Would you, would you meet us in this space and invite us there? We love you. We're eager to hear from you. You're welcome in this place. Come and speak to your people. We are listening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, just before we plunge in, let me just say that it's really good to see all of you. Yeah, every summer I take several weeks off from preaching, and uh, we do that because we're convinced that it's good for you. There's really great quality communicators on our staff and, and in our city, and for us as a people to be shaped by the Word of God that comes from a variety of voices is really important. I think it's really good for your soul, and also it's, it's really good for mine. I'm thankful for the moments to be restored and encouraged, and, but I must say I miss this. And so it's really good to be back here looking all of you in the eyes with God's word opened with anticipation that he's going to meet with us. It's one of my very favorite things. It's good. It's good to see you. You ever read that children's book, Going on a Bear Hunt? You know that one? We're going on a bear hunt. Gonna find a big one. It's a beautiful day. We're not scared. Anybody? You know this? Swishy swashy. Swishy swashy. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's been running through my mind as I've been preparing for this morning and the sermon series that we're launching out on together that we're calling Show Me Your Glory. Not because we're searching for a bear, but because we're going on a glory hunt together. And I've been, it just kind of keeps playing in my head. We're going on a glory hunt. We're going to find the God of the Bible revealing himself in fresh and full ways that we are going to together set our gaze on the glory of God and trace it through the scriptures because the glory of God is a central theme of the Bible. And we cannot understand ourselves or our place in the world, what it means to be human, if we don't have a proper understanding and awe of the glory of God. It's crucial to our understanding of the scriptures. And so, We're calling the series, Show Me Your Glory, kind of trying to lay hold of that beautiful golden thread that is the glory of God and see where it runs throughout the scriptures in hopes that we would begin to understand its impact on our lives and who we are in light of it. You see, in the book of Isaiah, we are actually told that God created you for his glory. It's why you exist. We learn in a book like 1 Corinthians where it says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. So it was the motivation by which God created you. It is your pulsing purpose every moment of your existence 
And the book of Habakkuk tells us that the end of the story is that the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The end of our story actually gets consumed by the glory of God. It will be like an infinite sea that we are drift upon. It will be the story of our existence together communally forever. The glory of God will be the summation of all that is. It was the motivation for why you were created. It is your purpose moment to moment. It is your destination. It's really important that we understand what we're talking about and how it's giving shape and structure to all that is. We're going on a glory hunt. And just before we plunge into this particular text, let me just give you a, a simple definition. What's the, what, what are we talking about as we're going to be talking about the glory of God? The term that is used in our text and throughout the Old Testament is a Hebrew word, kavod. You want to say that with me? It's kavod. Kavod. Yeah, good. That's your Hebrew lesson for today. You learned some Hebrew. Very simply, it means heavy. (laughs) What it means is like, ooh, that's heavy. The heaviness, the density of God. What it means is that God has a mass, a weight, a gravity, an importance, a value that outstrips everything else by an order of infinite magnitude. Others have defined it as the radiance of his perfection. The idea that God's character, if you place all of his character traits on top of one another, and you say, and all of them always show up in all of their perfection, in that place, at the centerpiece of who God is, what radiates out is bright and brilliant light that is unapproachable. It is the glory of God. It's like, ooh, that's heavy. (laughs) Kavod. What we're talking about is the weightiness, the importance, the value, the beauty of God that is grander than anything else we can lay eyes on or experience. And what we're asking is, what does that matter for our lives? And what does it look like to go on a hunt to understand the way that this glory gives shape to our lives? This morning, we're plunging into Exodus 33. You heard the text read. Um, This, in many ways, is the place where glory shows up in the scriptures. It isn't talked about until the book of Exodus. It's been talked about a few times in the chapters leading up to this one, but only as an aside in moments where God says, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. I'm going to show that I'm greater than the kings of the world, heavier, weightier, more valuable, more, more impressive, more powerful. But now, glory takes center stage in this interaction between Moses and God. And this is the first moment where we start to see uh, the importance, the beauty, the centrality of glory. And what we're going to see today is that Moses is cultivating an insatiable hunger for the glory of God. Like, not satisfied anywhere else, can't be experienced anywhere else. He's going, I hunger for this and this alone, this above everything else. And that's going to be, I believe, God's word to you and me today as we start on this this glory hunt together. As we go to Exodus 33, it's going to be this. Be insatiably hungry for the glory of God. That's what we're wrestling with. And in order to start, the first thing that has to be in place that we're going to see in this text, if we're going to be those sorts of people that are hungry for what's most important, the first thing has to be this. We have to refuse to be satisfied by small things. 
a refusal to continue to have our hearts satisfied or to, to seek out small things. This is where the text starts. In Exodus 33, verses 1 through 6, what we're going to see is that God, in a sense, is going to make an offer to Moses and the people to give them all the small things that their heart has ever wanted without his presence. And he's going to say, what do you think about this? In a sense, he's training his people. He's sifting their desires. He's helping them begin to figure out what their priorities really are. Just before we read, let me just help you. The, the context is right after the golden calf. You remember this story? Last week, we heard about Moses setting the people free by God's power through the seas of the, through the Red Sea. And just after that, the people make it out into the wilderness. God meets with Moses up on the mountain, gives him his law. And while they're meeting for 40 days in the fiery cloud on the top of the mountain, the people's hearts begin to wander and they, they start to worship a golden calf. God comes down and and calls them to account, and that's just happened. And now the question is, well, what next? What are we gonna do? Here's the offer that God makes. First one, the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, emphasis on disastrous, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, and if for a single moment I would go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Do you hear what God does? He makes them an offer. In essence, he's saying, if I were to go up among you, the only right response for me, a holy God, to you, an obstinate, stiff-necked, sinful people, is that I would have to judge you fully. You don't want me in your midst, but I'll give you everything that you want. I'll give you full victory to every one of your enemies, an angelic escort directly into the heart of paradise. It's flowing with milk and honey. What that means is abundance in all the ways that you want in the earth. He's going, I will give you all that you've desired. I'm just not going. In a sense, I believe that this is the ongoing training for Moses as the mediator between God and his people. It's God continues to invite Moses into these moments where he, he kind of he opens himself up a little bit to see how Moses is going to respond. He lets him know, okay, you can do this, but I'm not going to see what what Moses is going to do. And Moses, in this moment, realizes this is disaster. This invitation to have everything that we thought we wanted but not have God is a disaster. It's like that recognition about your Powerball dreams. I know we all had them. Like when you see it tick up to 1.5 billion Peter and I were talking about that this last weekend where, it, I mean, it's just easy to start going, well, what would that be like? Some, some things would be easier with the old 1.5 billion, you know, and you start, you, your mind can wonder as to all the things you would do. In a sense, he's inviting them to consider their Powerball dreams. Here's everything you ever wanted. All of your enemies wiped out. 
milk and honey as far as the eye can see. It's all yours. I'm just not going to be there. Does it satisfy what you, what you really desire most? He's beginning to help them explore their priorities and to consider what really makes for the whole, full, joyful life. I'd love for you to consider for a moment your own daydreams. We all have them, those moments where work is stressful or relationships are tough, and your, your mind just wanders, and it wanders to that list of things that you think, if only these things were in place, everything would be good. I'd be content. I'd be at rest. And what I've noticed is that that list changed over the years for me, and it's always changing. In a lot of ways, it grows longer and more complex and nuanced because I got the things on the previous list, but it didn't deliver in the way that I thought. You know, it's like, ah, uh, marriage. If I get married on the wedding day, then we just ride off into the sunset, everything. And it's, well, kids, if, if we're able to have kids, then we'll be satisfied. And it's, it's obedient kids. Uh, and then it's, uh, when we buy a house, then we'll be satisfied and everything will be okay. And then it's, well, a bigger house would be nice. And, a, and, a, and the job, but the better job. And, the, and, the, and we're trying to get it all together. If I could just get it all, I'd finally. And into that space, what God is inviting us to is to recognize that, that if he's not central to whatever the daydreams are, they're a disaster. It's disastrous. We had cupcakes last night at my house, um, celebrating some things together. I didn't, but I watched my family enjoy them. I'm, uh, I'm doing fasting, this fasting thing, you know, so I, was, I got to watch them eat their cupcakes. Uh, and I, it was such a joy getting to share that moment together, but I was thinking about it. If I were to ask my youngest son, flour or sprinkles, what's more crucial to the cupcake? If he's just looking at like a little pile, pile of flour and sprinkles, every time he's going to be like, boom, sprinkles. Those, that's where it's at. But the truth is, if you, if you swap these two things, if you make the sprinkles central and the flour secondary, I just want you to imagine for a moment baking cupcake with sprinkles instead of flour. You put it all in there. I mean, it's just going to be a mushy, nasty mess because there is no cupcake if there is no flour. If you swap them and you just have this nasty puddle of a mess sprinkled with flour on top, everybody's going to go, I'm not eating that. <laughs> and the truth is, I've been, I've been meeting with a new friend uh, we've met several months back through a mutual connection, and it's a friend whose life has been milk and honey like in ways that probably populate most of our daydreams. But this person who has struggled to figure out what role God and his glory might play in their story is articulating to me that the lived experience from the inside out is like, bleh. Like I, yes, it looks good on the Christmas card, but what I'm telling you is we can, it's not okay. And I don't... I don't know what to do in this space. And what I'm realizing is this, that until the glory and the presence of God, like, like flour is mixed and it touches every part of our lives, the structure and the weight and the durability of our lives to actually be able to receive it, that's what gives it form and function. 
the sprinkles are not a bad thing. God wants to give his people milk and honey, but what he's saying is they only make sense in light of the other. And so the question is, as you're working the recipe of your life, have you swapped the, the flour and the sprinkles? <laughs> it is a disaster if we daydream and plan our lives around small things. They might feel really big. The house and the marriage and the kids and the career, it all feels so big, but it's kind of like when you find your house on Google Maps and then you start, you start zooming out and real quickly it's just lost in the mix and you go, oh, it's much smaller than I thought. And you keep zooming out until all of a sudden there's this little rock flying through the cosmos that is called Earth and we're one of eight billion on the planet and you're starting to realize all the things I'm so fascinated with are tiny and will be gone tomorrow. And God is training up Moses and the people of God to say the first reality is this, if you're going to develop a hunger for what matters most, it starts here. Refuse to be satisfied with the little things, the small stuff. And just an aside before we plunge forward, one of the reasons that we engage in some seasonal, regular fasting as a family here is because it's training towards this end. It's simple. It's even silly in certain ways, but it's profound for me to sit and go, you know what, Jesus, you're, you're, you're better than a cupcake. You're better than that morning cup of coffee. I want to keep directing you, directing my heart to you in my moments of hunger to say, what would it look like to, to hunger for you first and most? This is the journey of fasting and praying and saying, we're not going to be satisfied with the little things anymore. It raises a question. It raises a question in the text. Why? Why is the presence and the glory of God so much better than angel escorts into paradise without God's presence. And the text immediately anticipates that. It's almost as if Moses is going to go back and go, oh yeah, let me remind you the way the presence of God has been functioning in our community and why we would be lost without it. This is what you get in verses 7 through 11. In essence, what he's going to say is this, the reason we have to refuse temporary satisfaction in the small things is because intimacy with God provides you guidance and awe in life, things that, that the milk and honey will never be able to give. They provide you with guidance and with awe. Look at verses 7 through 11 with me in the way he says it. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now just as an aside, Moses was just up on the mountain of God and God was explaining to him the tabernacle that he wanted him to build so that the presence of God would be in the middle of the people. But he just has the architectural plans for this. They haven't built it yet. That's not the way it works. What he's saying is before that tabernacle showed up, this is how we used to operate. There was this tent of meeting outside of, the, outside of our camp and this is where I would meet with God. This is where people would meet with God says this, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at the tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see, what Moses is explaining right on the heels of God saying that his presence is not going to go with them is the experience of his presence in their midst. And what he says is this, I have had real relational access to God. Like God has been available. The God of the universe has been available in the way that everyone recognizes, the way that Moses is enjoying and experiencing. It says that he talked to him face to face. It's, it's an important note that later in the text it says that no one can see the face of God and live which some have said, this text disagrees with itself. I think it's important to note that later in the book of Numbers, it actually explains that Moses wasn't peering into the face of God. He was interacting with the likeness of God. And here this phrase, speaking face to face, is just a, a standard kind of colloquialism to say like, hey, they were close. God was available to him. Moses had access to God truly. So Moses is interacting with God and did you hear it? There's two things that are happening. One is that this is how guidance took place. Anyone that needed a word from God would journey out of the camp and they'd say, we know God is out there and he's available to us. And this is in the spot where Moses learned how to direct this horde of people in the wilderness, which direction to go and what decisions to make and how they were going to get water. And it was God speaking to them that was sustaining them. They needed guidance and it only comes from the presence of God and communal awe. Did you hear it? When Moses would get up and start moving to the tent of meeting, it's almost like the whispers were running through the camp. Everybody's going, Moses is on the move. He's going out of the, they're shaking each other's tents and going, everybody out. And they'd all come and they'd stand right by the door of their tent and they'd stand and they'd watch and they'd see the glory cloud of God come down and meet with Moses and they would worship. In those moments, that community was being knit together as their hearts were being anchored into something deeper than their circumstances. A confidence that the God of the universe is guiding us and tending to us. So when God says, I'll give you all that you want, but I'm not going with you, they're going, what? Who are we if you're not with us? Who are we if we're not anchored into something beyond the circumstances of our life? This would be a disaster because it's your intimacy that provides guidance and communal awe. All the milk and all the honey in all the world will never teach you how to love and to live and how to experience life in all of its fullness. That comes from the heart of God. The good stuff, the best stuff of life is bound up in the presence of God and it is irrespective of the milk or the honey. You follow? There are many people that will that will reach the rainbow's end and get the pot of gold and go, really, is this it? Is this it? There's gotta be more. And what Moses and the people are recognizing is, yes, there's more. We can have intimacy with God that leads us through life and provides an anchor to our community that teaches us what it means to be in awe and wonder. This truly is what life is about. And I tell you all of that as a wind-up to Moses' final interaction with God, the one that we read at the outset. Because this is the birth of the glory hunt. It's as if Moses has been ushered in and goes, okay, I'm not gonna be satisfied in the little things anymore, and I know your presence has, has 
given these things in the past. And then in this moment, in this interaction with God, he goes for the gold. He cuts to the jugular. He says, take me right to the heart of the matter. He is gonna boldly ask, God, show me your glory. And I want you to hear the exchange because in a sense, what he's doing is he's beginning to realize that the law of diminishing returns doesn't apply here. I took Econ 101 as a freshman at TCU and I got the 8 a.m. class. You know those classes that you take as a freshman that you go, never again? Uh, so I remember a little bit, but not much. I do remember my professor explaining the law of diminishing returns to us. It was the first or second day of class and he said, I want you to imagine that I'm gonna give you some M&Ms and you have to eat what I give you. And I give you one M&M and you go, oh, that was, that was a nice little gesture. Thank you. Don't mind if I do. He says, now imagine I give you 10 M&Ms. And you go, oh, that's even better than one. Now we're talking. That's a nice, satisfying little treat. He says, now imagine I give you 100. And you'd be like, nah, I might be able to do 100. I might not feel great, but that, I think I could do 100 little M&Ms. He said, now imagine I give you 10,000. And you're like, oh, no. Uh, I'm not going to be okay at the end of this experiment that we got going because there's this reality the law of diminishing returns that what is good on the front end you think oh that's so good I want more of that that there's a moment where you don't just crest but you you actually begin to precipitously fall and that in the M&M experiment what he was what he was showing us was this that it actually the thing that you think you want more and more of at some point will be life-threatening to you there is a law of diminishing returns. There is a point at which you don't just get infinite return. It begins to turn down. What Moses has come to realize is that in the scope of the world, it's absolutely true. The law holds in all places but one. And I want you to hear it in this exchange with God. What he's beginning to realize is that the, <laughs> the returns only continue to increase exponentially with you. Hear how favor is laced to this text. Favor actually builds to more flavor, favor to, to glory. Favor to favor to glory. Listen to this exchange between God and Yahweh, as, or pardon me, as Moses and Yahweh as he presses for the fullness of God's glory. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Did you hear in that moment that Moses says, you said I found favor, if I found favor, reveal more of yourself to me so that I'll experience more favor. He knows that going further into the heart of God is experiencing more and more of the good that the world, that, that, that God has to offer. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is the answer to the disaster. I will go with you. I'll give you rest. At which point you'd think Moses might go, okay, we got this settled. But he's beginning to realize that the law of diminishing returns doesn't apply here, and he keeps pressing. He says, okay. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not 
in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. I'm amazed that God allows weak little humans to make outrageous requests in his presence. It's almost as if he loves when we ask the biggest things of him. When Elisha said he wanted double Elijah's power and presence, God said, okay, I'll do that. When Jacob wrestled with God all night and said, I will not let go of you until you bless me, God said, yeah, I see that, I'll bless you. And here Moses says, I want to see what no human being can really ultimately see. And God said, we can work something out. He said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'm gonna put you down in the cleft of the rock and I'm gonna cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but you shall not but my face shall not be seen. You see, Moses is realizing that here in the presence of God, the experience of unending glory is available. More is always available. What I'd love for you to consider is that as Moses asks this audacious request of God, what has he already seen? What has he already seen this was stunning to me as I was considering this this week. Think about it with me. Remember a few weeks ago when you heard about the call of Moses? There was this burning bush, a bush that was on fire but not consumed, and the voice of God came from inside the bush. Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And he ends up telling him his name. I am to be. You can't get around my existence. Moses heard the voice of God and saw an emanation of his power. He took off his shoes and said, this truly is holy ground. And then God gave him this staff that would turn into a snake. And start it even ate other staff snakes. You remember this when he's battling with the Egyptians and then it turned back into a staff. Crazy story. That was the staff he was carrying around that he saw happen over and over. That's wild. Then he saw 10 plagues unfold. He saw the waters of the Red Sea split. He saw God lead his people by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. And then in the wilderness, God said, I want you to come up on the mountain, that mountain that's quaking and that is on fire and lightning is striking on the top. I'm up there and you're coming to meet with me. And Moses went up for 40 days. He ate nothing. He drank nothing because he was sustained by the very presence of God in such a way that made his skin radiate. That's what he has seen. And still in the presence of God, what he says is this. Would you show me your glory? Do you hear it? What he's saying is this. Friends, no matter how much of the goodness and the power of God you have seen, have tasted in your journey, there's more. There's infinitely more. And it doesn't even stop here because God passes by and he speaks his name and he reveals himself in all of his goodness and his beauty and his power to Moses. And, and then Moses continues from 80 to 120. For the next 40 years, he sees God provide 
Water comes out of the rock. God swallows enemies of Moses by the earth. He doesn't let their sandals wear out. He preserves them for 40 years in a way that manna falls from heaven. When they want meat, he brings quail to feed millions with the drop of a hat. He sees God do miraculous things for decades. And I want you to hear what he says in Deuteronomy 3. He's now 120 years old at the end of his story. Deuteronomy 3, 23 and 24. I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Do you hear it? Moses has found the one place in the world that the law of diminishing returns does not apply. It's going, every little bit I taste of the glory and the goodness of God is a revelation to me that there's more. It's like I'm scratching at the surface. He says, I'm 120 years in and I've barely begun. And do you know, if Moses could be transported, transported from Sinai to our room with us, if he was just, he could stand here for a minute and look around at us, I think what he would say is, what's it like? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you? Like, The greater exodus has happened. Jesus, by his body, was ripped and his blood was shed. And in his death, he was conquering Satan's sin and death itself. And in his resurrection power, he has secured life for you. And now he has poured out his presence on you and the Holy Spirit, such that the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that I saw from a distance have come and made their home in you. You have guidance and awe that is unlocked by my presence. You have availability to come and meet with me at every moment. Moses would go, you guys have a privileged position. Tell me, what is it like? That in Jesus, we actually go running past Moses. Moses had to go out to the tent of meeting. And what the New Testament says is, your very body is the tent of meeting. That we together collectively are the recipients of the presence of God. And he's going, it is available to you and you will never find the bottom of it. 7,824 years from now, Gary and I will look at one another and go, there's so much more. We've just barely scratched the surface. Like, God, show us your glory. Friends, you were made for eternal affections, infinite beauties. Don't be satisfied with less. Don't set your gaze on less. I've been praying that God would make us a people that are alive to this reality that the tapestry of God's beauty and perfection like a golden thread is woven all around us. It's available to us. And one day, like waters covering the sea, it will consume all of the earth. It is our destination. I want to to be the sort of people that say, God, show us your glory. We refuse to be satisfied with anything less. We're going to live for your glory. We're going to set our gaze on your glory. And so as we go on this glory hunt together over these next several weeks, would you consider setting aside a a day or two or three and the next several to, to fast and to pray together with a community and to begin to pray in earnest? God, would you would you peel back the veil and help me to see your weight and beauty and power?
fully displayed in the face of Jesus, available to us by his spirit, we get to be a people who experience the glory of God. Oh, that he would show us his glory, yeah? Let me pray for us. Our Father, would you forgive me and forgive us? Forgive us where we have been satisfied with small, insignificant things. Where we keep running back to dry wells, thinking that we can drink and experience what we most desire. I pray that in this season, you would set us loose together on a glory hunt that we would pray boldly like Moses, that we would ask for greater vision of your beauty and goodness, that we would be the sorts of people that hunger for you and you alone. God, I pray right now for my non-Christian friends that are in the room, the ones that are just kind of peering over the fence and wondering what it's like to be Christian. I pray that you would woo them even now by your spirit, that you'd speak to them at a heart level and help them to know that there is greater joy and greater satisfaction to be found here in the heart of God than in anything that they have previously set their gaze on. God, would you win them to yourself? If that's you, would you be willing to begin to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you? And on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ, God, I pray that you would create in all of us a greater hunger and desire and excitement that we have only just begun. There's so much more of your heart to explore, so would you take us further up and further in? We want to know you truly. You are welcomed in this place. We thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. We love you, God. Show us your glory. Amen.